if you look at a society, the more protein they eat, the sicker they are. And in fact, the healthiest societies in the world tend to eat about 7% of their calories from protein, whereas we eat 15% and try to get 20 if we can't even more. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Lori Marbus, and you were just listening to Dr. Garth Davis, who, for many of you, doesn't even need an introduction. He has written a book called Proteinaholic, and I hope you will enjoy this conversation as we discuss America's unhealthy obsession with protein. Have a great day, and don't forget to check us out on Healthy Human Revolution, where we answer all questions you could possibly have about one, healthy habits, and a whole food plant-based diet. Welcome, everyone, to the Dr. Lori Marbus podcast, also in conjunction with Healthy Human Revolution. Today, we have Dr. Garth Davis. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're super busy and just taking some time of your day to spend with us. So we really just want to get down to really one, you have a very interesting um, look into obesity because you're a bariatric surgeon. And then many of those are pushing, you know, surgeons will push uh, a high protein diet, but you've written a book called Proteinaholic, which is kind of takes a different view. And if, could you just tell us a little bit about your story and how that came about? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I went to, you know, went into bariatric surgery and I had a very surgeon mindset. Like there's a disease, I'm going to fix it with my knife, you know, the typical surgeon, uh, we could fix everything. A chance to cut is a chance to cure. Um, but two things happen simultaneously. First of all, I started noticing it's great to cure a patient. It feels fantastic. But when you see patients starting to regain weight, you have to start questioning it. And I wrote a book at that time called The Expert's Guide to Weight Loss Surgery, where I suggest that people eat protein first because that's what I was told. Now, the interesting thing is when you go to these bariatric surgery conferences, you'll sit there for a week discussing bariatric surgery, and you won't discuss food at all. No discussion of food. Someone's gaining weight. After a weight loss surgery, talk about other weight loss surgeries you could do to them, which, wow. you know, kind of struck me as odd. Uh, but, you know, I just kept going along with it. And so I started to see my patients coming back and starting to gain weight again. And this seemed very bizarre to me. They also didn't feel well and they were, the cholesterol was going up and their diabetes was going up. And then meanwhile, I was getting more and more overweight. And I thought I was eating healthy. I was eating the way I told my patients to. Um, you know, I was eating cheeseburgers from time to time, but then if I felt like I was getting weight, I just would cut out the bun because Lord knows it's the bun and not the cheeseburger that's causing the problem. And then I went to get a life insurance policy test and I tested very high for cholesterol. I was hypertensive, which I didn't know. And I had fatty liver disease and this blew my mind. And I said, okay, I'm doing something wrong. So I really started studying the rest of the world. And I, I really, the more I learned, the more I studied. Mm. And it was amazing to me just how much, if you look at a society, the more protein they eat, the sicker they are. And in fact, the healthiest societies in the world tend to eat about 7% of their calories from protein, whereas we eat 15% and try to get 20 if we can't even more. Um, and, and interestingly, breast milk is 7% protein. And, and so it, this all kind of came together as I started reviewing the literature, as I detail in my book, that that this emphasis on protein may actually be completely wrong and that the emphasis should rather be on fruits, vegetables, and specifically fiber. And uh, as I changed my diet and the diet of my patients, 
um, everything changed. I, I found a help that I never thought I would find for myself and for my patients. And what I've, I really like that, that you brought about breast milk, um, for human breast milk is 7% protein. And this is a period of rapid growth, right? Neural right. growth, brain growth. And then oftentimes you'll hear, you know, the paleolithic crowd kind of say, Hey, um, Protein was the reason our brains were growing during evolution, which brought us, you know, to be kind of the the species that took out, you know, over the world and whatever. But honestly, if you look at back at actually what has happened physiologically, that's not necessarily true. Right, and in fact, that is that that's very wrong. The paleo guys are completely. It's interesting that the paleo guys, none of them are actually anthropologists. Um, Oh, look, there you go. Okay. okay. Um, so none of them are actually anthropologists. And actually, if you look at uh, Dr. Domini's work out of Harvard, uh, who's a PhD um, specialist in what paleo man actually ate, uh, he has a theory that our brains expanded because of uh, tubers uh, and root vegetables. And so these high calorie starch dense vegetables were actually, because they, there's no way that man could have gotten enough meat um, in order to get that brain expansion. So brain expansion actually probably came from, from vegetables and not from meat consumption. Absolutely. Uh, and then they look at the paleo poop and it's like a hundred grams of fiber right. a day. Fiber a day, right. Exactly. Yeah. I'm lucky if I hit 75 and I'm dying. So Yeah, yeah, 75 is a lot, but uh, <laughs> I want my patients to get 40, but the average American gets 12, so we're right. way off. My goodness. So tell me now you have um, a family and how did you bring this home when you had this revelation and your own health is evolving and improving? How did they accept it? Um, they accepted it well. I mean, we've been doing it so long now, it's, it's hard for me to even remember. It was about 12 years ago. Um, actually, the first day, the first time I ever thought to myself, I'm going to do an all plant meal was the day my daughter was born. Uh, and, and that was 11 years ago, I guess. So 11 and a half years ago. So, um, I've been doing it a long time. Um, my wife has become a really good plant-based cook. Um, my kids, you know, my kids, it, it's funny. Like, I, you know, you can imagine having me as a father. I don't want them to, you know, one day be in a psychiatrist's office with all kinds of eating disorders. So I try to be fairly liberal with them. And, and uh, you know, in the house, we just have, you know, really healthy foods for the most part. I mean, there's some kids stuff. But, you know, some crackers and some chips. But for the most part, there's a lot more fruit than you'll see in your average family and a lot more vegetables. And our meals are, that my wife prepares are much more healthy and are vegan at home. When the kids go out, they're vegetarian. So they will eat. I'm not going to stop them from having the pizza. At the, they're not going to be the one kid at the party that can't have the pizza. I obviously prefer they didn't eat it. But, um, but I also, you know, have to tread lightly that I don't give them eating disorders um, and I want them to come at it their own way because they, they kind of came across, I mean, they they understand the ethics and the veganism a lot better. Like, um, you know, my daughter once said to me, isn't it weird, Dad, that there's chicken nuggets and then there's real chickens that run around and they're both called chicken. I'm like, well, babe, that's because they both are chicken. She's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, that chicken used to be, that chicken nugget used to be a chicken. And that like blew her mind because she goes to these farm sanctuaries and pets chickens and loves chickens. And she's like, I'm never eating a chicken. And so, you know, that, that part is pretty easy. It's a little bit harder on the dairies part, but for the most part, they're vegan. That's, that's very good. Cause when we changed our diet, um, I had three teenagers at home, 13, 15, 18. And now that's been seven years. Um, you know, we had the same thing. We were vegan at home. And when we'd go out, you know, we'd say you can eat what you want, but over the course of the year or so, they all made that transition to plant-based, even went through college and, 
I got one in medical school, so they're plant-based. So this is that modeling, I think, is more important. Yeah, I think the modeling is important. And they certainly, you know, look to me as like, oh, dad's eating this or dad. And so that it does rub off. It does rub off. And I think that's amazing. So um, I just, we had talked about it before because we had just finished a discussion for uh, the podcast for the journals digest. Um, But I would like to say, you know, just kind of reiterate what you mentioned before, why America is so fascinated with protein. And if you wouldn't mind just summarizing that again. Sure. I mean, you know, there's so many things that affected it. And you got to understand that many, many years ago, as we started the 20th century, we were more concerned of just getting enough nutrition. And so actually eating meat was uh, was a good thing because it was high in calories and it showed that you were rich because you were able to afford it. Uh, there were farming and agricultural changes towards the 1950s made the meat supply much larger and much cheaper. And all of a sudden we're eating a lot of meat. Um, I think of course, the, the thing that really started it to me was the Senate Select Committee on Nutrition in the 1960s, the 70s, because they started out as a committee to address undernutrition uh, in America, but they found that there wasn't, I mean, there was certainly some, but not that much. What they saw as a bigger problem was our overnutrition, because since the 1950s, we've been eating more and more meat, and we had more and more heart disease and more and more obesity. And as they addressed that and did their meetings, they came out with a recommendation that we should eat less meat. And of course, the meat industry and the egg industry and the dairy industry hated this. And they fought this very, very hard. They had Senator McGovern, who was chairing the committee. They had him voted out of office. And the recommendations completely changed. So the recommendation, simple, to just eat less meat changed, to eat more lean meat. And all of a sudden, we started talking about lean and low fat and low carb. And of course, as we went low fat, we didn't do very well because industry jumped on this and they started producing low fat, you know, cookies and low fat Oreos and low fat this and that. And that's not going to help our health. And besides the fact, we never went low fat. We kept eating actually more fat. We just ate more of everything. And then we're not doing well low fat. So people say, well, we must go low carb. And at about the same time, Dr. Atkins is doing the low carb diets. And and so there becomes this big battle in the literature from the 70s all the way through the 2000s of low carb versus low fat. And the two camps are constantly battling with each other. And meanwhile, in the back, protein kind of rises to this pedestal. And people tend to forget then uh, that there could possibly be a problem with the protein itself. And they stopped looking at food as food and rather looking at it these, as these individual parts, which is a real problem. And then when you kind of go to the point of what can be harmful to the body, can you give us a highlight, you know, kind of a big overview of what that, you know, excess protein load is actually doing to us? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot of things. So, I'll go through a list, but I could go on and on about it. So animal protein, we know, stimulates IGF-1, which is tied in with cancer development and aging. We know that um, leucine stimulates mTOR, which is a pathway that's led to aging. We know that the amino acids in uh, animal protein tend to have more sulfur compounds attached to them, which create acidosis. And the acidosis have a, a definite effect that animal protein has endotoxins in it. Even if you cook the bacteria out of it, endotoxins do elicit an inflammatory response. Um, we know that uh, animal proteins or, or, or meat in general has more um, 
AGEs, uh, advanced glycolated end products to it. We know that cooking it produces heterocyclic amines uh, that um, are carcinogenic. We know that animal protein tends to be higher in heme iron, um, which can damage beta cells and um, can oxidize lipids, which, which is really bad. Of course, meat is high in saturated fat, which can increase cholesterol and inflammation. Um, and uh, we know that animal meat has new 5GC, which we can express on our own cells, uh, which can possibly be related to autoimmune and to cancer formation. So there's all these, uh, all these different pathways uh, that are mechanisms of action to what we actually see. Uh, and then, of course, there's the fact that animal protein, uh, whether it's the protein itself or whether it's the lack of fiber when you're eating predominantly meat, changes your bowel bacteria. And by changing that microbiome, there's many diseases that are going on. We know meat eaters, when they eat carnitine or choline, they transform that to TMAO. And that certainly could be very toxic to the body, uh, whereas plant-based eaters don't do that. So um, there's many different pathways by which increasing animal protein can be a serious problem. That was a really interesting study with the TMAO. I don't know how they got the vegan or the plant-based person to actually consume <laughs> meat. Yeah, to actually consume actually... meat. I wouldn't be in that study. <laughs> it was, there must have been a lot of money involved. That's all I can say. <laughs> right. um, and so now you've mentioned all of this evidence. We can look back. We can see it in our own patients. Um, how do you respond to colleagues who may question your, you know, your thought process or what your recommendations are? Because I know how I've had to deal with it, but how do you do, it? especially as in the surgeon, you know, the bariatric surgery field, when that's all you hear is, you know, high protein, high protein. I actually had a patient several years ago bring me your little pamphlet in Colorado from many years ago, and uh, I thought it was really interesting. The first one. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, look, I do it mainly with literature. I mean, I show them the evidence. It's, it, you know, people will say, there's no evidence for this. And basically what they're saying is, I have not read uh, the, the literature uh, because there's, the, the evidence is so strong. As you know, my book, it, it was like a rabbit's hole. I kept finding more and more literature. Uh, I, the, my publisher actually stopped me. They were like, okay, that's enough. We don't need any more literature, but there's more, but there's more. So I do it with literature. And then of course I do it with my results and my patient's results. Mm -hmm. uh, I try to walk the talk. My patients walk the talk. When you look at my gastric bypass patients, they look so healthy and mm -hmm. so different than these gastric bypass patients that are trying to stuff protein down their mouths all day and they look bad and they don't feel good and they're not getting the antioxidants and the phytonutrients uh, that they should be getting. And, and, and so by walking the talk, I think, is the, the best example. So this is interesting. So when you do the surgery on the patients, so what type of progression do you make with them? Like what does their diet look like as they're recovering from surgery? Well, we still do the liquid protein diet in the beginning, um, the, but eventually, I, I don't really care about the beginning diet. That's not my interest. My interest is what are they eating five years, 10 years out from surgery, because that's when the real benefits come. And so uh, once they could really start consuming food, I just changed the whole discussion. Instead of in the old days where I said, you got to eat your protein first, eat protein, 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 I told them I never want to hear the word protein. If they're going to talk about any breakdown product of, of food, it has to be fiber. But I basically go over with them diet plans that are whole food, plant-based diet programs. And I told them they could eat meat, they could eat some chicken, they could eat some fish, but that the majority of their plate has to be fruits, vegetables, beans. And I give them sample diet plans that are all plant-based. 
So how do they respond? So this is because, again, they may have been down so many, I'm sure, diet pathways and whatever. How are they accepting? Because it's like you're really challenging probably what their belief is and what they yeah, think. It's easy to challenge because they've done this for so long and it's never worked. And so when I, I challenge them and I say, what have you been eating and what are you eating and what are you doing? Well, I've done Atkins five times and I've done South Beach and I've done, the, and I said, you understand those are all low carb, high protein. Yeah. That's what my doctors told me to do. I was like, and let me ask you something. How has it worked for you? And they're like, well, gosh, I guess it hasn't worked very well because here I am. And I said, okay, well, it hasn't worked for you. Let's look. If we're the most unhealthy country and we eat the most protein, let's look at the healthiest countries. And what are they eating? Well, what are they eating? Well, in Okinawa, they're eating rice and sweet potatoes. And in Sardinia, it's pasta and breads. And in the Korean Peninsula, Costa Rica, it's rice and beans. And they're like, wow, right, you're right. And they, they, it really clicks. that It clicks to them that doing the same thing over and over again is probably not the right answer. It's almost like you have to force them to look in the mirror and just kind yeah. of take a, an account of their own history, which is right. in and of itself. <laughs> it's a very right. good tactic. Um, again, I was curious then, how do you proceed on a day with your own eating? Like people always want me to say, well, ask them what they're eating in a day. So can you give us a little rundown on a day with eating with Dr. Davis? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty basic. I do like oatmeal and berries for breakfast. They always have oatmeal at the hospital with berries. Uh, lunch is usually a salad with a baked potato or beans or some kind of starch. Um, I'll do some nuts and an apple for a snack. Um, dinner, all kinds of different things. Last night we had noodles with um, mixed stir fry vegetables and tofu on it. Nice. <laughs> so you keep it simple. I keep it pretty simple. Yeah, I mean, we eat out. When we eat out, then it's, you know, a little bit different, Korean food and, and Mexican food and those kind of things. And then, you know, it gets a little bit more fancy when you go to plant-based places or even regular restaurants that make plant-based meals. I mean, and going out can be really confusing for people because they don't understand they can actually ask for separate things and different things. What is the one obstacle that you found that your patients, are you seeing a common um, difficulty that they to stump them? Well, yeah. I mean, the common difficulty is people telling them they need protein. It's this mm -hmm. constant, their doctor says they need protein. And then, uh, you know, invariably, you know, they could get a cough or a cold. Oh, it's because you're not eating enough protein. I mean, it's like, you know, it's this ridiculous blame everything uh, type approach that doctors do. I mean, one patient came in and told me that her dentist said that her hypothyroidism was because she was vegan. And I was like, you know, there's been many studies on this and vegans don't have a higher rate of hypothyroidism. And I was like, what does he tell all the meat-eating hypothyroid patients that their hypothyroid is called. So, you know, theirs is all, we don't know why, but yours is because you're vegan. It's just crazy. You know, it's, it's ridiculous mindset. That is really funny because I, I was hypothyroid um, since the birth of my second child 22 years ago. And um, when we went vegan, plant-based, because of a patient encounter too, by the way, um, my thyroid dosage plummeted more what I needed to take for four years in a row. Crazy. You know. I'm curious, um, because you do have a different approach and you're still doing the surgeries, what percentage have you looked at of your patients actually will regain weight versus those of, you know, the regular colleagues and what they're doing, practicing the standard, you know? What um, yeah, I don't have very good data on that because in order to get good data on that, I have to have a better breakdown on on specifically which of my patients are eating what, and uh, I just don't have a good database for that, although I've got a new database that's pretty good right now. Um, but 
my five-year weight loss with gastric bypass was 80% excess weight loss. Uh, and most of the data is anywhere between 60 to 80%, but usually around 72%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is considerably better, uh, but that is certainly not a controlled uh, sure. prospective study. That's just my anecdotal. And that's on a, a um, uh, I think our five-year follow-up rate was something like 30, 40%. So it's just not good enough to be able mm-hmm. to publish the data on it. And then as far as the normal post-surgical patient, what number of percentage of them actually regain the weight? Uh, That data is all over the place in the literature, but probably regain all their weight very low. Uh, We consider success with surgery 50% excess weight loss, uh, and and probably only 10% ever don't, you know, go back below that 50% excess weight loss. Okay. Most people keep the weight off with the surgery. Right. And then that just kind of goes to um, the question. So is there's a question, is it the surgery or the food that reverses like diabetes, for example? How do you approach that? It's both. In, in, my, in my experience, both. the surgery does it by itself, for sure, because there's people that are getting the surgery that are still not eating a good diet that have reversed their diabetes. And that's several reasons. Their calorie intake drops. And in the end, if you drop your calorie intake, that's enough to, to cure diabetes. Um, there's also an effect with the gastric bypass on a hormone called GLP-1 and GIP. And these hormones uh, have a big effect on diabetes. And so that independent uh, hormonal effect of the gastric bypass has an independent effect on the diabetes itself. But then, of course, with my patients eating a low-fat, higher-nutrient diet, that, of course, also will have an effect on diabetes. So it's all of that combined. Absolutely. So then when people go to look for you, you used to be in Houston and Texas. And I also went to Texas Tech Medical School, but um, now you're in North Carolina. Why did you move? Oh, I, I've been in Houston all my life. I wanted to try a new city. I like the program here and I love the city. I wanted to be out in nature more. Mm-hmm. So uh, Asheville's just this great place in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains and uh, go hiking every weekend and love it. Oh, it is a beautiful place. And when uh, I lived in Florida before now, I'm in Seattle, but um, we were running away from Hurricane Irma. <laughs> we stopped through Asheville and it was a really beautiful place. Amazing history. Yeah, it's a fantastic place. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I know you were busy and tired. And again, we, we so appreciate you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.